Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 73 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my life stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And as a little post-Christmas treat, we have three podcasts this week for you, each with a different honorary counsellor. First up, bass player Kamel Hines, part of the Star Council's live band from 1985 and on record from our favourite shop right through to that rejected final album. Kamel also played with Paul during those early solo years with the likes of Helen Turner, Zeke Manjika, Steve White and Jack Peak. So let's get into it. Kamel Hines, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Dan. My pleasure. This is a real joy for me, I have to say, because you were there right at the beginning when I discovered Paul Weller as a solo artist. And yeah. we'll chat about all that in a sec as well. For you, when was it you first became aware of the music of Paul Weller? Oh, well, it was way back in the jam days, really, to be perfectly honest. I knew I knew um, a lot of his kind of um, a lot of his major works in the jam days. I was in the industry myself with my own soul groups, I guess, you know, in the Brit funk era, especially a group called Central Line. Paul and I, I think we first met in Holland we were on a TV show together we had a hit over there with a song called Walking Into Sunshine and he was over there with his string of hits at the time in the 80s he had about 10 number ones in a, at the same time or something like that I think he had it. but anyway he was over there doing some promotions and we just sat down in a little green room or whatever back at, on this TV show and started chatting and he knew of my kind of um, soul group situation and I obviously knew of him and we chatted away and it wasn't until I think a few years later that um, I got myself an answer machine Panasonic with a little tape it was like a new piece of kit that along with my file of facts, you know, in August 1984, my band Central Line split up and it was like a it was like a love affair being split up. It's like, oh man, what am I gonna do? And rather than mope over it, I just um I went through my um A to Z and called everybody and said, Look, I'm looking for some work because I didn't want to be idle. You know, it was really quite depressing your band splitting up all your mates and stuff like that, you know. And I went through and within a couple of days I got a call from 
phonogram records, one of the secretaries said there's an audition going in um, Manchester for this group called the Kane Gang. It was that era, Dan, where all the record companies were telling artists, no matter what genre you are, you'd have to do this new 12-inch record thing, you know, so you have to do this other version. So they called in people like myself on the bass. And I got a lot of bass work, you know, doing just playing for groups like the Bolshoi, It's Immaterial, Heaven 17, um, the, the Kane Gang, various groups just playing 12-inch versions of their songs, which to me was perfect. You know, I'd kind of done the mathematics on yeah I have to get my head around the, the verse the chorus and the bridge and I was away you know quite easy money really and it- How much were the actual bands involved in the extended mix if you like or was it more just they've done the original then handing over to session musicians to, to pad it out if you like They would often be there in the studio like you know they would often be there and making sure because obviously it's another another mix you know you're, it's your artistry you know you want to make sure that they're to your liking and um, and I was always always prided myself in being what I considered a, a consummate professional that you know as soon as I got to the studio I'll get my bass out and it's like okay what do you want you know they'd give me some direction but they'd say they'd want a bit of scope where I, I just um, you know I explore different parameters they'd say yeah I like that let's do some more of that and you know they could just cut and paste what they want then and it's a, quite a joy to do sometimes I'd be doing two or three in the same day you know I went to some of the top studio at the time and one was Solid Bond you know down in Marble Arch and I think Paul had his own label and he had uh, one of the songs that I'd done was Dizzy Heights I really enjoyed that session. I remember, I remember, you know, I was really on it then and, and I just, um, I gave it some basically. And I think Paul must have walked in and heard that. And he was the first message I got on my answer machine. And it was like from the first ever message on my answer machine was from Paul Weller in 1984 saying, would you like to come and play on my new album? I said, well, you've got to be kidding me, yeah? We'd already done Cafe Blur, which I thought was uh, amazing. I love Tracy Thorne's um, yeah. Paris Match. That does my head in still to this day, you know. So he's doing the new album, Our Favourite Shop, and said like, would you like to come down to the studio? And I I knew that Steve White was on board. I knew that Mickey Talbot was on board and, and Helen Turner and DC Lee. And, and it was just like, yeah, I have some of that. They recruited me for for then until, you know, it went, went a bit off. Then we had done all the festivals and uh, our favourite shot went straight to number one on, on our first gig at the uh, Brixton Academy. And it was like, blimey, man. This is living the dream. Weren't you involved a little earlier, though, with Bert Bevans? Let me get blimey. this right. So, yeah, so he was this New York house DJ who, um, I think I'm right in saying, set up Ministry of Sound, didn't he, at, at one point? I knew that Bert was, um, I think Bert was introduced to me to me from uh, an ex-girlfriend who worked in club promotions at EMI and then at Virgin. And he he got me a lot of session work. Yeah, it's kind of it's taken me back now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm not sure in what order, going back a bit now, early 80s, like mid-80s or something. Yeah, know. I'm talking about nearly 40 years ago, to be fair. But yeah, I think the first things were he created these club mixes of, um, what was it, Money Go Round and Long Hot Summer. That's right, yeah. So, got you to do bass on them, right? They got me to do bass on long version of Long Hot Summer. You're well informed, aren't you? <laughs> I can't quite remember the club mix, I'll be honest with you. I'll have to dig that out in terms of seeing yeah, no. what the difference was, you know. Well, I've got to tell you a funny story. When we when we done the, the, the Live Aid thing, I think Long Hot Summer was, um, well, no, it was You're the Best Thing, sorry, no. So I was playing keyboard bass on that, on a bass, four-string bass. I'm very, I'm very confident, you know, especially when playing with Paul and the Style Council and that and In My Element, soulful rock bass player, that's me essentially, you know. Playing keyboard bass, it was like... I was a bit nervous on that, you know, just in case I hit a wrong note. Or, but also the fact that those analog keyboards used to go out of tune. <laughs> if, if, if the heat, like at Glastonbury, my Pro 1, where it actually belonged to Mick, it went out of tune. So we were playing and literally went like totally mad, you know, in a key on another stratosphere kind of thing. But we were all drunk at the time, so it didn't quite, it didn't quite matter. But just thinking when we got to Live Aid and thinking it's in front of my parents and in front of the whole world, if I hit that note and it's not in an A440 diatonic scale, I'm in trouble. 
you know, I'll, I'll be toast for the rest of my life. The roadie. Um, was it Dave Little? Yeah. yeah. Dave was winding me up next backstage. So status quo on, first of all, on the circuit stage. And we're, on, we're ready to go on when they spin the stage. And he says to me, oh, it's gone out again. And we, we do the festivals. And, and I believed him. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going on stage in front of the whole world. And we hit this note. And it was going to go out of tune. And I hit the first note and it was perfectly in. And I was just like, there was no cameras on me at the time. But if, when I hit that note, I was like, yes, thank you. <laughs> and once I finished that song, it was like, I could put my bass on and I was, I was, I was, I was away and I was really enjoying myself, you know. But back, until back, then, in, back in your comfort zone again. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're joining of the band and joining, you know, when you're invited to play on our favourite shop. So Anthony Harty leaves the band and you get introduced, I think, also, because um, Zeke Menyika was a great connection and we'll dig into that in a sec. But invited to play on our favourite shop, you like to say, this album's number one. Um, and you then join for the Internationalist Tour, going all around the world, which sounds hugely exciting. But the band were right on top then, like you say, number one album, top 10 singles, most importantly, sounding so tight, both live and on record, weren't they? For me, throughout my career, the template for me for doing any form of, uh, you know, I teach a lot at universities and stuff like that these days. And one of the great things is doing workshop productions with young creatives who really want to get out there and do it. And one of the first things I get to is, you know, the fact that Having worked with someone like Paul Weller, who is, when it comes to rehearsals, I've never ever experienced anything like um, working with, with him because he works you to the bone. We'll do a month before any style council tour. We'll do a, a good month of rehearsals, you know, five days a week. But it's like going to war. You know, like, <laughs> really, we'd be, with war with a bass guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we'd be chatting about it in the evening, like up to 30 songs. And sometimes you didn't know what was going to be, you know, the out of the blue might just change the, the set list just like that. The level of attention that you had to give to those situations and being very aware of even on stage my thing was like you know I'm to the right of Paul a lot of the time and I'm looking at his face he would just tell you by this just by his expressions what to do and we would know we were so well rehearsed we would know and to be perfectly honest the style council and I guess especially the Paul Weller band when when, when we got into the Paul Weller band and we, we went to the States and the Japan a few times we were so tired it didn't matter who else was on the stage it could have been the Foo Fighters it could have been Stevie Wonder it could have been whoever we, we could hold our own and we could we say bring it, bring it on because we were so confident and we, yeah I thought it was quite exceptional actually the level of professionalism the level of discipline the level of determination and the level of sharing the a joint vision you know sharing his vision was all encompassing and it, to me I, I advocate that in terms of collaboration today it's like you know the right human beings you know the, the, the will taught me so much just absolutely brilliant and hard work though yeah I mean obviously putting in the hours to get to, to that point yeah yeah I mean real hard work yeah yeah, like I say, the rehearsals were, they were no joke. Sometimes I couldn't sleep at night. It was that, you know, because you, you know, you got, you got to be on it. And funnily enough, people don't tend to realize a bassist, not like a guitarist or keyboard player, you can lay down or, or, or lay down a, a chord and stuff like that. With a bassist, it's the melodic um, aspects, you know, all those riffs, you have to remember all the riffs as well as everything else. It's not as easy a job for a bassist, funnily enough. And, um, and people tend to assume that they're getting away with murder, but it's like, it's hard work. You have to remember a hell of a a lot in terms of the riffs and the timing and, and all those kind of things. How I used to do, I'd probably often, I think one of the albums, I think it was Confessions, um, yeah, maybe in, a bit further on, he'd invite me around his house and, and he'd tell me what he's intending and send me away for, with some tapes. I'd spend a month just absorbing what he wanted. You know, to me, 
my role as a bassist and anybody's role as a bassist is to actually support the foundation of the house. So you have to know what the singer, what the front person is intending, you know, and that's to, down to the dynamics, down to the spacing and everything. So my thing was just absorb the ethos of what, what he's, what he's intending. Once I've done that, then I'll start to map out the, um, the, you know, the, the bars and, and the arrangements and stuff like that. I wouldn't touch my bass for a good few weeks before I started work. So it's the preparation. It's a ritual for me. It's like, you know, I'm not the kind of person that you could say, Oh, uh, um, someone's dropped out of this base, this this gig with someone. Uh, they need someone tomorrow. To me, I need to be prepared. I want to really hone in, and uh, and once I'm prepared, I can deliver. And there's a point where I guess that tightness becomes almost telepathic in a way, where you're you know exactly where White is going to go if he takes off on you know, on, a, on a drum riff or something like that. You you're kind of just feeling your way around the band so much because of that confidence. Totally the case. I mean, I remember one time in San Francisco when I looked over the other side of the stage and I saw Jacko Peak, and we had this moment. It was like a serendipity. It was like you're feeling the same euphoria as I am, aren't you? It, it really was. And it's like, we often got that. We'd, we'd, we'd glance over the stage and I'd look at Mickey Torbert and, and he's in his element, he's rocking away and I'm thinking, yeah, we're delivering here. The audience are really, we're giving the audience a gift and they're giving us a gift back and it's like, it, that that feeling, you know, it's, it's, it's second to none, really. And they were pretty full on the tours, weren't they? I mean, John Weller, Dave Liddell, Kenny yeah. Wheeler, um, they all like a drink, not not least the band. Uh, all right. well, Did you what, keep up? What, <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm a lightweight. I always have been, you know, uh, a Guinness and a half and I'm slowing my words <laughs> I swear to you even now it's been a bit of a blessing for me sometimes they used to call me a tortoise on tour because uh, we get to somewhere like LA a few would be you know finding a local bar or whatever after the, I'd be back at the hotel kind of like getting myself prepared and, and gathering energy for the for the sound check the next day or something like that. or not always you know I've, I've had my moments kind of, you know, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a lightweight if, if I don't get a good night's sleep I'm rubbish. I'm, 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 I'm not one of those to go through the night and just um, and cope really well. In fact, um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. I, I remember doing a, a video for um, Ronnie Scott's for Heaven 17. They didn't employ me afterwards because I'd, I'd been up the night before, you know, being a bit of a naughty lad, you know, burning the candle. I didn't get any sleep. And this video shoot was all day long. Um, it was with David Ruffin, with Jimmy Ruffin. Sorry, I'm falling asleep. On, it's like it was a bit of a it was a bit of a bluesy ballad anyway. So it's like I'm 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 losing <laughs> all day. I took it down. I was losing it all day long. Literally, it's like it's like I just if I can just only sleep for half an hour, please. And I think they detected that. And you know the the, um, the director or whatever is like. Yeah, I didn't get employed after that. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Others on the podcast have talked about the Sound Council being like this family. It's often easy for people to say those kind of things. Yeah, it was like a family. But this, it really was in, in, in so many respects, especially the British tours, you know, we'd get to hotels in like, you know, Sheffield and Edinburgh and Birmingham, stuff like that, on the outskirts usually. We'd be, we'd be playing out in the gardens and stuff like that. The camaraderie was beautiful. Solid Bond, the organisation, exceptional organisation, you know, obviously, you know, Paul, John and Kenny at the helm. The way they managed that that organisation taught me so much, taught me so much. It, it was at the top end, you know. We didn't have to lift a finger, really, until we got until we got into, into sound check, on, until we got on stage. You know, um, everything was taken care of. They make sure we had the, you know, it, within the deals that they struck with uh, different organisations around the world. Everything was really comfortable, and they knew that we were, had to be at, at our, our top to deliver. We were in a position whereby, you know, if we didn't deliver, we'd be out. Basically, but, you know, it's like, you know, we know what we're doing here. We're being looked after. There's no pressure there apart from the fact that you've got to deliver in your department to make this the best show possible. You know, and it wasn't always easy. You know, it's like um, sometimes you think you've done a great gig and then Paul would come off and say oh, rubbish you know what you know or alternatively you know i'm not too sure i perform 
And it'd be, that was fantastic. You know, from your perspective, we delivered and, and, and they really appreciated it. You know, um, okay, it wound down a little bit in the latter years in, um, in 93. I think I was going to be off the rails myself at the time. You know, on the whole, it was, um, yeah, a well, a well oiled organization and very impressive and taught me a lot uh, about how to impart those things to, to the creatives of today, you know, in, in respect of, you know, if you really want to make it at a high level, you know, you've really, you've really, you've got to microfocus. No point. You don't, don't bother focusing. You've got to microfocus, you know. We can obviously see you on film. So um, Three Nights at Wembley, there was this 15-piece string section. A lot of people talk about it being like the ultimate lineup. And uh, so the Showbiz video that came out and is, you know, available on YouTube and I think high definition on DVD. The band looks, you know, you guys look amazing in that really tight. But there's one gig I wanted to talk to you about, which was, I think I'm right in saying the Shaw Theatre because yeah. you played with DC Lee as well. Did you perform like three separate sets once with Style Cancer, once with D, and once with Hindsight? Would that be right? That's right. Well, in a way, Paul gave me the the headline there. That's how I I got a deal with um, Circa UK, and ultimately by retaining the rights for North America, got a deal with Virgin America as well, which helped me to buy this 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 flat that I've got here. This little you know um, quaint little flat I've got here. Yeah, such a kind man. Paul Weller, you know, such, a, you know, and I could tell you lots of stories about, you know, what, the, you know, the, the treats and that on, on the road and stuff like, you know, you used to get, be given loads of gifts, um, especially in Japan. You'd have a hundred people following around on the bullet train and giving him like Gucci this and, and Yamamoto that. It's, it's say, come, come up to my room. So go to his room in a hotel. Say, I'm not wearing that. It's like a polka dot, like, you know, a Giorgio Armani shirt. I said, yeah, I'll have that. <laughs> and he used to take us out shopping, especially in the, when he went solo. It t- often take Jacko and, and Zeke and myself out to the West End to, to, to various shops and say like you know get some gear for wearing on stage and that's proper you know proper gear that we like wearing as well like you know like leather jeans and stuff like that you know Foo Fighters style you know. <laughs> yeah so, so that's Shaw Theatre I was kind of like I was honing my own skills as a, a singer songwriter as well you know because Central Line of Split Up we were pretty known well in, in America we made a good imprint there uh, with our first album I still had this dream of actually uh, you know, creating a, a platform in America in that vein. So I created Hindsight and the rehearsals were were mad. I mean, that was, that was real pressure because I was rehearsing these unplugged set, Paul's unplugged set, and then my own band in the evening doing the Hindsight um, set, which was like a real pressure because I hadn't done many gigs, but um, I knew what I wanted to do there. And yeah, it was it was a real turning point, but it was a lot of, lot of pressure. But it went down really well. At the end of the night, we had, because I think um, there was quite a few acts on, I think, um, what's his name was um, comparing it? Um, see the old brains going now. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Who was around yeah. that time? Um, wasn't Porky, Porky the Poet and all that? Yeah, he compared it. Phil it. Jupiter, sorry, yeah. Yeah, Phil, Phil, Phil compared it. And so Terence Trent Darby done a solo vocal and, and, and piano um, thing. So he came on first. With, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you how, my band's coming on last. I said, oh, oh is that so serious? He's just smashed that sign your name and you're done. Yeah. Oh, man. That, that voice, it was like, and I've got to go and sing on there, you know, with my like limited range of stuff. But anyway, we've done a really good set, Hindsight. And we've done our um, encore was Thank You for Let Me Be Myself, you know, which Paul came on, on stage and, and all, all of them came on stage. And, and, and Phil Catlin and we just had a that was really good I wish we'd have filmed that I wish someone would have filmed that because that was that was really beautiful and it was a such a gift for me because Paul was paving the way for my own solo outing as well at the same time and uh, and, and, and it worked pretty well because I then toured seven states of America and got a Billboard Top 20 in the states with a song um, over over there with hindsight things so I treasure those memories and it was a beautiful time I really value that for sure 
Yeah, I love these stories of the, that kind of generosity of spirit and the kindness to other artists. And people have always talked about how Paul's like the first to credit somebody on an album. And you do look at that with the Style Council vinyl and even the jam. I think there's one of the albums you open it up and actually the um, horn section are alongside Bruce, Rick and Paul and credited in there. You know, yeah. it's, it's always been like that, hasn't it? That's what sustained, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm how many, 45 years in the industry now until I drop. It's like it's working with people of that calibre working with people that really appreciate other creatives, other human beings, especially now that I'm, I'm, I'm very careful about who I work with because I've had a few years where I've worked with people and, and depleted my energy a lot and realised that I was in a bit of a bubble then. And to me, I, I live for ever-evolving, micro-focused collaborations. It's a joy that we have this avenue as creatives, you know, you know Dan, we, have this, we can delve into this avenue here where some people are, are not as fortunate to be able to channel the energy, you know, especially at this time we have now, the last year and a half, it's like channeling your energy into a creative pod is a great thing to do because otherwise it can become very bewildering. You know, it's like, so working with like-minded creatives in, in collaboration is, is the most beautiful thing. And when that's right and the time is right and that, you know, like it was with the council and with the Paul Wellerband, it's just uh, Christmas, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing you touched on actually, when you talk about that lineup at the Shaw Theatre and the the lots of different artists things. Obviously, Red Wedge was such a big thing for the Style Council, and you know, all those different acts that played each night, and and how uh, you know amazing that was. And we've talked about that on the podcast. But there was one thing, Rock Around the Dock. I wanted to talk to you about 1986, um, Mersey Docks. You're all on a raft, and oh, yeah, blimey, you. I, yeah. I, I would never remember that if you hadn't brought it up. But now, <laughs> all I remember is going across the raft, going across the water to a raft. Wasn't there's some um, Wogan or someone that was on the, on the raft waiting for someone. I don't know. It was some, yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. Some, some mad thing. But we, did, we, did we plan the raft? I think we probably did, didn't we? Yeah, we walked across the water on the raft. And we, you bring it back, but it's very vague. I can't remember. <laughs> well, there was a lot of madness in the Star Council, yeah. to be fair, not least the music videos and all that. There's a, you know, there's a lot of humour in that band as well, wasn't yeah. there? Yeah, always with Paul and, and, and uh, Mick, especially. You know, Mick is uh, um, the driest man on the planet, you know. Very funny man to be around, you know. Always jesting. I mean, even the... The, the ethos of the Star Council with the you know the um, the cappuccino kid and all and all that kind of you know that that um that offshoot of the fashionista kind of side that was all humor led kind of thing you know didn't quite understand a lot of it but, <laughs> but you know for me just playing that role I've got one base well I've got two bases actually one that someone made me for Live Aid and my Music Man Stingray that I bought especially from when I joined the Star Council in 1984 cost me 250 quid and I went ran back to East London to get the get the money you know it's just a dream base you know. And so putting that on and getting the right tone and, and one thing comes to mind playing uh, Old Grey Whistle Test and, and the sound on TV was not usually that great, but this was this was a great sound and it even come, come across really nice on TV. I think in my first TV performance with them and it was like just playing that bass and, and, and playing those songs, the calibre of songwriting from Paul Wellis. You know, when you talk about UK treasures, his contribution in songwriting is, is, is and poetry is, is immense. The calibre and, and, and the repertoire that that man has of songwriting and how he keeps morphing from year to year in that respect and coming out with these new gems and stuff like that, you know, it's just absolutely astonishing. So, so hold on two seconds. We, we talk about Live Aid. This is, you know, two billion people worldwide, I think, isn't it? Something ridiculous in terms of viewing figures. And you go on there with a bass that somebody's made you. So have you ever played this thing before? This is um, a friend of mine, Bernie Goodfellow. I just thought it'd be really nice to um, 
this special occasion, you know, <laughs> and I, I'd known that he'd been making um, basses for some time alongside a technician that done the, the, the electronics in there and that, you know, and he's a fine, fine bassist himself, Bernie Goodfellow. And I, I you know, paid him decent money for the time. And he got this Seracuti wood from Africa and stuff like that. And he, and he made it with a Lembic, um, um, really nice. He made a really nice bass. And, and it's, if you listen to it on live, it's a good tone as well, really good tone. So I thought I'd use, I think I'll use that first of all, then I put my music man on, which is my real key bass. And yeah, it, it worked really well. I've, and I've got it to this day. I've only got two basses. Some pe- sometimes I walk into studios or rehearsal rooms and I'm there and I meet another bass player and they start talking to me about equipment and like, you know, amplifiers. And yeah, I've got 13 basses and, and this and, and that. And I, I just, I can't, I can't fall asleep. I'm, I'm, you know, yeah. I've, You're back I've at Ronnie Scott's, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I like the four string bass. Never played a five string. Four strings, you know, listen to Willie Weeks, you know, who played with Donny Hathaway. The Donny Hathaway live album, you know, the dynamics and the bass playing on that is a, a first lesson for any um, serious basis as far as I'm concerned. You know, Anthony Jackson on Steely Dan and stuff like that. You know, it's like they might be playing five and six strings now, what Anthony is, but four string basses are what, the, what I heard at the time. And that satisfied my soul. I don't need to go any further than that. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be a virtuoso on the bass. This is like, you know, I just, I just enjoy the instrument, and that's it. And I'll, I'll pick it up and deliver when I'm requested. You know, by, by a decent songwriter. You know, but Live Aid was mad because you were on, like you say, you were on After Quo, and then you went off and did like a TV performance recording thing, and then you're back there next to Bono and all that for the finale. You're popping up and doing Feed the World, aren't you? I was standing next to, to Freddie Mercury. <laughs> that's brilliant. As soon as we finish our performance. They carted us off, as you say, to Maidstone to do um, play with an orchestra. It was, I think, the first time playing with an orchestra on a TV show, and we were doing um, Milton Keynes, you know, which I think is a, a, a mad but great composition. Talk about humour. It's a great composition, you know. That was really beautiful to be playing with an orchestra there, you know, and, and seeing all those uh, violins and cellos playing and, you know, and, and the conductor and stuff like that, and to holding it down with an orchestra, because that kind of classical precision is everything, isn't it? So I felt really kind of um, accomplished in that I'm holding down a classical bass which is where I came in on bass anyway you know I'm holding down with a classical orchestra here and so that's, that's a real achievement they took us back to the finale and it's like on the front of the stage and I'm standing it's just Freddie Mercury and it was the greatest performer on the whole of the, the whole of the, the event as far as I could it's like blimey Freddie Mercury and, and all these uh, artists backstage it's just it, it was quite, it's quite a, it's quite mad surreal you know but um, and then they took um, David Bailey Carter's backstage after we cut uh, as soon as you've done your performance they cart you backstage and take a group photograph and that was nice as well so we had a nice um, style council you know of the moment you know circa love um, that 85 that was lovely love that because I heard a story I can't remember where it was now it might have been in the Soul Deep book where because um, you were you were a footballer as a young kid or wanted to be a footballer and your, your dad wanted you to be a footballer right so that was you at Wembley finally and your dad got to see it yeah. I thought it was well, lovely but, yeah my, my, my father um, when we was on the Reg West tour he, he, he was he was not too well and, and, he, and he, he passed shortly after that and at a relatively early age so it was, it was kind of a, a very frail time for me but you know um, I was able to say to my father who was really he knew that I could play at Wembley as a footballer. I definitely had the the, the talent. I, f- I feel that I feel that I was more confident as a as a footballer in terms of strategy and in terms of like application and and, and knowing that I could actually um, foresee or, or or read a game than ever in the music industry. I, I played for East London Schoolboys from primary school all through primary school and all through secondary school, and then I got picked in a um, a match 
by an old scout called Willis St. Pierre at West Ham in a cup final against Newham where myself and Alan Kerbisley got picked to go to West Ham. So I've trained at West Ham with Alan Kerbisley, you know, use their, use wow. their physio, use their, their tub and uh, use their field and, and, and their, their, their practice ground was trained by, um, Frank Lampard senior and Clive Best and, um, people like that would train us at the, um, you know, the training ground and stuff like that. I had all the potential to, to go professional. But uh, unfortunately, and I don't want to bring the, the, the mo down, but unfortunately, you know, as, as is still the case, you know, it's, racism was rife and I felt it. I'm a very sensitive man. I'm a black and white man or a white and black man, whichever way you want to look at it. And I, and I felt that very, very profound at the time, but I didn't know how to articulate it at the age of 16, 17. So I didn't have that conversation with my father. I just kind of, I kind of left the game. And fortunately at the time, the Jacksons and the Osmonds were coming to town. So I, I had that identity to, to connect with and they brought in the Motown era, which is like another cornucopia for me, you know, listen to those Motown bass players. And then my friend Kenny Wellington of Light of the World started teaching me a little bit about poetry and um, and also introducing me to the bass guitar. And when I saw uh, you know Jermaine Jackson playing the bass guitar, I said, oh yeah, I'll have some of that. And I tucked into it and, and I was gone. And it was only, it must have been, I don't know if it was six months or a year later, my dad inquired as, he said, how's it going? And Because um, he assumed that I was still going to West Ham on a weekly basis, collecting my half a crown for arriving. Right. And he was, he was, Totally gutted that I was there no, no longer, and he was—I know it really disappointed him. Getting back to the the blessing was that he was able to experience me. I got to Wembley, you know, yeah. played a lot. Yeah. I'd love to be on the pitch, but you know, it's like a, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice comparison, though, isn't it? You know, it, yeah, it, it's it. lovely. No, it's a lovely story. I have to say, man, we should talk about two other things. Um, one, we should talk about that night at the Royal Albert Hall, the end game, if you like, of the Style Council, 1989. You have three gigs in Japan in June, and the Style Council always come up with these names for these tours. So this was the Style Council review, which went. Really really well but this is Paul embracing house music which I'm guessing I'd say Paul the rest of the band are into all this stuff as well obviously you Mick and Dee and stuff you wrote Sure is Sure with Paul as well didn't you for the for this yeah. album that yeah. never comes out he got me to be musical director for the Japanese tour never do it again <laughs> what does that mean what's the difference between playing bass and musical director was he he was oh, asking no, you to come you. up with the vision and and that, that, I, I had to rehearse 16 very difficult creatives I realised afterwards yeah Paul he morphs with different genres and subgenres as they go and, and absorbs what he wants from them he'd done a great version of Joe Smooth's song you know um, Promised Land uh, yeah Promised Land you know, and he really absorbed the house thing there but it wasn't really what Japan wanted from, from Paul at all bear in mind that Polydor at the time because I, I had a couple of um chats with um, John Weller about that at the time. They kind of stiffed Paul at that time there, you know. The whole industry is morphing towards this, not, I wouldn't say a fad, but it was something that was going to actually come around in the psychic nature of things. If, if anybody with a bit of foresight would see, that would kind of like find its place. But then, um, the revival of Paul Weller and what he does would be easy to actually manifest uh, given the time. They blew the, the Style Council out thinking it's the end of an era and stuff like that, and the end of, which I think was a bit of a mistake. And John was like beside himself. It's like, you know, they just, the way they treated him wasn't too good. And I had an insight into that. But I'd done the, um, the MDing, but it was so much pressure. I got paid handsomely for it, must say, you know. For a week's work, it's probably the best wage I've got for a week's work in my life, to be perfectly honest. But it was, it was stress. And I don't do stress. It was hard. It was hard work. We got through it. And then we'd done the Albert Hall. And um, I had an option to do this song that Paul had written that he got me to sing a vocal on, which I don't think he's ever released, but it was... Um, a song called Funny, was that right? Oh, man, what a beautiful song. Never seen the light of day, is it? Funny, not that much, how I miss your tender touch. It's like you know, an irony kind of thing. Nice. Absolutely stunning song. Even after 93, when I was left the Paul Weller band, I said, Paul, I'd like to do a version of that song. But because I felt I'd sung pretty well on that, that version. 
and and I also like the the mood of that version. I wanted to retain that and, and, and do a version of it, but I was never given the right to do it. But yeah, absolutely beautiful song. And I've kind of lost a lot of my falsetto voice, so I don't think I could do it. But I never had the confidence to do it at the Albert Hall. I wish I had. Because of the house thing, I went and done this stupid little house song that I'd written, um, and I kind of lost the bottle on stage, really. I just I went out front and sung this song, and, and, and it was just like, it was embarrassing for me. I don't know what it was for the audience. It wasn't a memorable time at all. Oh, but if, that's it. <laughs> I, I, I feel that... If I'd, if I'd had more confidence, because this jazz song went through a lot of changes, and I thought to myself, in hindsight, I, I wish I I wish I'd done that. But, you know, it's all relative, isn't it? Um, I'll send you a version. Of, I'll send you the oh, version. Oh, please do, man. We've done it at Solid Bond, and I just done a version, and, and he really liked it. It needed a few more things, you know, some of the, the end courses needed to be put in the middle there and stuff like that, but needed finishing off. Yeah, I'd love to get my hands on, on the stems of that. Somewhere in some archives, someone would, would eventually dig it out, I'm sure. If I have a cup of tea with uh, Paul Weller in his lifetime again, I'm going to bring me handcuffs and say, you, you're not me <laughs> give me the stems for fun. I want to put it on an album one day because it's just a, absolutely beautiful. And the playing from him and, and Mick, Mick Torbert, just sublime. Mick Torbert was talking about that Royal Albert Hall gig and the fact that almost Polydor stitched it up in a way because they released the Greatest Hits album so maybe the expectation of fans going along is that they're going to get a Greatest Hits set and it was this couldn't be any further away from a Greatest Hits set in the sense like you say different oh. vocalists well there's a couple of maybe well-known songs on it but not an awful lot in that set list is there? No it was, it was um, I, th- I think it was just a real tangent at the time lots of young new artists were there but didn't necessarily have a lot of the experience to actually conduct themselves in a way that was conducive with us having a, a very focused time you know house music built up on four bars stuff like that for me to actually arrange it and to actually well the stops and starts work was a nightmare like you know <laughs> I, had, I, had, I was I was sitting with charts and stuff like that there thinking I could actually you know oh <laughs> Let me move you away from that nightmare because I can tell it's uncomfortable. Back to uh, the Weller comeback. We're into tomorrow. Aha, uh-huh, oh yeah, oh. the first solo album. Talk about credits. You get credits on Round and Round and Cosmos in terms of backing vocals. There's this lovely B-side to Above the Clouds, which I love, a, a track called All Year Round. I don't know if you remember that. But you're part of the band with Zeke and Weller and Jacko and Helen Turner and Steve White. That must have been so exciting. Tell you, Dan, what a band. You know, even now, I mean, you know, I know there's Paul Morse all the time, you know, different bands for that. But I tell you what, what a band you know I, know I know magic when i when i hear it and see it you know what a band that was a rehearsal time where we were in into the months at a time you know because remember paul had uh, lost his deal with polydor he only had a deal in japan at the time and he was feeling he just found the confidence to go solo but it was still very very fragile very fragile time. We all jumped in and said, like, you know, whatever it is, we, we were on board, you know. And we'd done a few tours of America. We'd done, we'd done, I think we'd done three tours of America, three tours of Japan with a Paul Weller band. We blew America apart. Absolutely blew, blew America apart. And that was a time we were, we were so confident, you know. Drop of a hat. Butterflies. Bam, bam, bam. <laughs> we, we, we were just there. We were, it was just like we were on. We were so on it. That was a pinnacle for me in terms of a band at the, at the peak of professionalism, you know. I don't think I'd ever experienced, even with my own band, so it, yeah, no, that was the pinnacle. What a band. We kicked ass, man, honestly. We've done three or four nights at the Royal Variety Arts Centre in LA, the, the Hollywood Bowl in Pasadena. That was something else. As we got to the States, we'd have three or four days off in a Huntington Lodge in, in Pasadena, just really gathering our sense of equilibrium. Thank you very much, John, you know, and having fun and just superb. I would always hold my hands up to that organisation and Paul Weller one of the most generous people I know on the planet people don't get the impression of him who he really is a lot of time maybe for his persona and he's like you know reserved and stuff like that an extremely generous man you know I haven't been in touch with him for years now you know long time in some ways it feels a little bit of a shame but you know in another way 
I'll, I'll always understand that man could not make that major contribution that he makes without morphing on every occasion. He's keeping going. His contribution that he's making, he wouldn't be able to do that if, if he's conscious of the things that, that, that he may leave behind when he morphs. I, I get that. And I will always appreciate the the decade or so or the best part of a decade with a star council then a little couple of years off and then back with and being invited back to do the poor weather but uh, that you know absolutely beautiful time in my life and your relationship with zeke is such an important part of that as well isn't it i met up with zeke again a little while ago i started doing this the social media thing for a little while and then i thought oh get me. <laughs> i had to run away man like, yeah. <laughs> what's next what's what are you up to at the minute i'm actually um, writing a musical um, wow oh wow cool yeah write a musical um i went to school with um with lionel bart's nephew and we hooked up fun enough ironically enough uh, through social media when i was on it about a, a year ago and we've been writing uh, songs for a musical ever since which and um, we've got a director on board and we've got um, we've got a, a, an extra script writer on board and we're, we're producing it with a director we've got a few actors on board singing some of the songs at the moment and uh, i'm not gonna tell you what it's about not gonna tell is, you is it an original story is it based on something else you can't tell me anything i can see your face <laughs> I think it's based on something that's existing but i'm not that's as far as i'm gonna go songs are absolutely amazing and they come into life and the director's really infused and um yeah i think we're gonna be workshopping around about april and and apart from that i'm doing i started this thing called myself and the open collaboration which is basically myself and a couple of other creatives who work really well together and we're just about to put out another song in that and i'm pulling out the occasion i'm toying with what songs i want to put onto a third solo album because I've done two solo albums mainly came out of Japan and that I'm just spending my time over it I'm just fine tuning maybe I'll fine tune them too much but you know and then, then another song will come along and I think to myself, oh that's going to take a new mode it'll end up probably about you know 50 songs on an album <laughs> but, um, I'm, I'm always in, I've got a studio in my garden so I'm always in the studio just like you know messing around with stuff and I've got a couple of projects on the go but the musical and a couple of other um, you know one-off um, projects going, but I'm waiting for someone to give me a call and say, um, fancy come and playing some bass for the Foo Fighters or something like that, you know, yeah. <laughs> or, or Paul give me a call and say, like, fancy coming out for a little tour. Yes, please. A couple of weeks. I'm still active on the bass and I'm not really one for looking for work in that respect. I believe that if it's meant to happen, it will happen in a serendipitous way and someone will say, you fancy a little tour? I say, yeah. Where are we going? <laughs> uh, hey, look, I have two final questions for you before you go. Um, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the star count, or solo which one's it going to be oh don't don't I, I think when someone asks me this kind of question there are so many to choose from from Paul that I sometimes think I should say the first one that comes to mind Boy Who Cried Wolf oh wow that's a good one nobody's mentioned that at all did you play on that I played live on it many times yeah. Yeah. I, I think I played um, keyboard on it there were so many you know, and I was in the Cotswolds um, last weekend and got invited to do a bit of glamping <laughs> in an orchard which was really nice, oh, nice. And, and, the, and the person I was staying with I didn't know she was a she's a Weller fan and, and we have a bit of a soiree with some friends and, and some family there and she started playing playing a song and so she's playing a lot of songs that I'm, I'm thinking oh I'm taking me back so and she played um, whatever changing mood she played and, and then she played so many moved me I mean the Weller band we toured Wildwood all over those tours before I even recorded it yeah I remember hearing lots of different versions of that and it kind of evolving before or it yeah. became a single and things from that period above the clouds is the one that gets me every single time what really? a tune yeah. what a, what a you, know, uh, you know Chris Bangs produced that didn't he did Chris Boy done a mix on it yeah I remember talking to Paul about that um, being above the clouds on a, on a plane coming home from somewhere 
and um, just ask him about his inspiration. About but Ball Rush has come to mind as well. That's one of my favourite. That would morph into Magic Bass, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I love playing that live. Ball Rush, is, that was my dream as a bassist as well. But what a song. And Amongst Butterflies, number one of that I think is a yeah. race. There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> He's picking them all. He's picking them all. Um, final question for you. So the purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to lovely people like yourself, but it's also to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. I gave up radio presenting 10 years ago with one big regret, which was never getting to interview Weller. If it happens, when it happens, what should I ask him? I think you will get that because you're a lovely man. Get your um, what you're doing here to him. I think he will he will make room for you to do that. What should you ask him? That's a good question, man. What was she asking? Yeah, yeah. What does he think of the band Traffic? <laughs> okay. Tell me, tell me about your affinity with Traffic, the band Traffic. And that, that get him talking. Maybe not a lot of people know that, but it's like you know, this is going back. This is going into the the roots of where he's coming from. You know, the um, bands like that, and and you know, the faces and all that, all that era there. You know, it's like um, a Winwood and stuff like that. Yeah, that's some of the roots of, of of that man there. You know, he'd like that as a question. I like that. <laughs> I like that. It sounds to me like you're almost talking about Paul's DNA in a way. This kind of makeup of the man, which is great. Yeah. Well, well, yes. Well, someone needs to. What do we do in our lifetime? We make a contribution to the to the stimulus of our species, and what a contribution he's making! You know, I love him forever for that. You know, hey man, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. If you do have that interview with him, say, oh, by the way, Cam says when we're gonna have that cup of tea. Make sure it's in his lifetime. My pleasure, Dan. Anytime you like, mate. Another fabulous guest on the podcast. My thanks once again to Kamel Hines. What a lovely guy. You can find out all the details about his work with the Style Council and otherwise. In the show notes for this podcast, just head to my website. It's paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And in case you haven't had enough special gifts this Christmas, we have another new episode landing tomorrow with another honorary counsellor. So make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You can get in touch on social media, on Twitter, at wellerfanpod, or on Instagram and Facebook, it's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please do share on your social media channels. I'll see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.